Well, good morning again, church. If you guys don't know me, my name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm not the normal speaker. Um, Pastor Tim is. And so if you're visiting for the first time, I'd love for you to come back next week just to kind of get a feel for how all of this goes on a regular basis. Um, Tim will be back up next week. But I want to start today with a question. Have you ever had someone try to tell you who you are and then miss the mark? Right? You had somebody who, they, and maybe it's a compliment, or maybe it's negative, but they are trying to tell you what they think, and you're like, no. Right? Like, um, this just happened to me uh, in the last couple weeks. I, I just wrapped up my tenure here as the youth pastor, and we had, uh, we had a night where I had a chance to, to speak to the kids one last time, and they had some things planned for me, which was really sweet. And one of them was this, uh, a, a card writing station where they could all write me a card. And I got to go through those just this week, and when I was going through them, I came across one. Jason, you are the best listener that I know. Nope. Like, they got that one all right. Like, I am not the best listener you know, I promise. Um, I try pretty hard because I know I'm not good at it because what happens is I leave every conversation and I'm like, did I even make eye contact with them? Was I even paying? I, I was thinking about what I think. I was thinking about what I was going to say. What did they say? That's who I actually am. And as sweet and kind as it was, it's a nice compliment. I know what he, he means, I like you, right? But the way that he said that was, not like, that's not me, right? And see, nobody knows you like you know you, right? Like nobody knows you the way that you know you. Like I'm the one who uh, was, was lost in a department store because I was playing hide and seek in the clothes and my mom was looking in other clothes and I was in the, and then I come out and I'm all alone. Right? I'm the one who was at Fun Junction at 15 on my first date wondering if I was going to get my first kiss. Now, other things in my life have been scary. Those are just the top two. <laughs> You're the one that has all your fears, right? You had your experiences. I'm the one who knows what I'm thinking but won't say. I'm the only one who has that, right? You're the one who felt the rejection of parents that were cold and distant whenever you were vulnerable as a teenager. Maybe you're the one that goes home and questions every word and every interaction because somebody in your life is always calling you a liar. Maybe you're the one, you're the one who was there whenever you tried and failed last time. Like, um, I remember um, being a, a, a slightly younger man, it was about a decade or so ago, um, I was a salesperson at a company, I was doing pretty well as a salesperson, the regional manager came to me and he said, how would you like to run your own store? Yes! I stepped into that opportunity, I, I ran a store in Glenwood Springs and I ran it into the ground. Like, like, I said yes to that, it's something that I should never have said yes to that I was not prepared to do, and I failed at it. Now that's in my background, that's in my mind whenever I look at new opportunities, right? Like I'm the only one. We know ourselves better than anybody else knows us, right? How I feel about me is the filter through which I determine what's true about me. You know what I'm saying? You, your feelings about you are the filter that you will determine what's true about you. 
I have a short video that I want to show you. It's like 15 seconds. It's from the 1930s, and it's going to help me explain this. Check this out. Oh, I want to hear it a little bit. It's all right. Oh. Oh, I see you guys' face. You're like, ooh. Right? Like, it's a, that's scary. That was the 30s, and it's still scary today, right? They didn't have CGI. They didn't even have the cool special effects in, like we had in the 80s for Star Wars. You know what I mean? Like, how did they do that? I'll tell you how they did it. They took this beautiful woman, and they painted all of the ugly on her in red, and then they put a red filter in front of the camera so that the camera only saw red. That wasn't special. It wasn't distinct. And so you see this beautiful woman whenever there's the red filter on there, and then you slide that out of the way, and you see all of the ugly. But because it's in black and white, you can't tell what that color is. Right? The filter that was in front of the camera determined what was true of that woman. And so for us, I think we feel like we're the only one with the right filter. My feelings are the filter that determine what's true. I'm the only one that sees it clearly. Right? Like, I think I'm a pretty good dad. But maybe you could follow me around for a couple weeks without me noticing. And then you come out and you're like, okay, I've been watching you. Um, you suck at this. <laughs> and I'd be like, you don't know me. Have you ever done that with the finger? Like, you don't know me. Or maybe you're a mess at home. And yet, people come up and they tell you how much they admire your poise and how you carry yourself. And in your mind, you're going, you don't know me. You don't know me. Right? Like, I'm going to make an argument here. You all have this internal battle with how you feel about yourself. But I think it is so common that it's like background noise. We're not even paying attention to the fact that we have opinions and feelings about ourselves. And so what I want to do with that background noise is I want to turn up the volume for just a minute because that's what I want to focus on today. See, I think what happens is we see the real version of ourselves. We're the only ones, right? And so there are things that we're insecure about. Like we constantly need approval from other people. Are you that person that needs approval from other people? Right, like, um, I, have, I still have another job. I still have like a part-time uh, sales job that I go to one, one or two days a week. And I have a pretty good reputation at that job. I'm a pretty good salesperson most of the time. But I have this really cool uh, like niche role where I don't have to go into the office if I don't want to. And so guess what happens? If I just had a big sale, that's the day they see me. I come sauntering in, I put that check down, beat my chest a little bit, and they all think, wow, he's such a good salesman. And you know what happens whenever I have a bad month? Crickets. They don't see me at all. I totally manage how they see me. I'm worried about what they think. I like them thinking I'm a good salesperson, so I manage that. Maybe for you, it matters so much that other people like you, that they see your value, that you can't say no to things. Are you the person that overcommits? You say yes to everything because you want people to approve of you. They, they need to like you. 
right? And then also there's this gross thing that's in all of us. Well, okay, there's this gross thing in me. You guys are great. Where we secretly want the person who comes behind us to do the thing to do it a little bit less good. We want the person who takes over for us to fail, right? We want, we want to make sure that they don't get the attention that we weren't getting in the first place or that they don't, they don't get the, the reward for all of our hard work, right? Or maybe when you look at the real version of you, maybe you, you, your insecurity shows up in that you are desperate for love. You're desperate to be wanted, to be included. It's not about being approved. It's not about what you do. It's about who you are. Am I part of something? And so we see people that are desperate for love, that are chasing it in our early years. College students hear me. right? Or in your marriage, you're bartering for love, or you're pining for it, and all you think about all the time is the fact that you're not loved. And it consumes us. Or maybe when you see the real version of you, what you think of as something that makes you guilty and shameful. Only I know what I've done. The people I've hurt. Maybe only you remember what you did in your first marriage. Nobody else in your life even knows. Only you know what you did last night when the doors were closed. Only you know how you treated those people at work last week. Only you know. And so when you get the right filter on and you see the things, you're guilty. See, I think the way that we feel about ourselves is so personal, but it also gets so reinforced that we become a slave to it. We are enslaved to the way that we feel about ourselves, and it determines a great deal of how we do our lives. How we feel about ourselves will determine how we respond. How many of you guys are frustrated that your spouse can walk into a room and not care what other people think, right? And you're not that person because how you feel about you determines how you treat that room. On the flip side, the spouse that doesn't care, that's still how they see themselves is how they respond to that room. How you feel about you will determine your goals, what you're going to get to in life. And more importantly, how you feel about you will determine your boundaries, well, I can't possibly do that. Maybe you could chase that goal, but not me. I can't be that person. Now, with all of that in mind, we're going to talk today out of Ephesians chapter 1 about some things that have to do with how we feel about ourselves that Paul writes to us in Ephesians chapter 1. And yet, in order to really understand, to grasp the things that he's going to say in Ephesians 1, I want to spend a moment talking about Paul's story. And so, we're going to actually start in Acts chapter 9 to talk about Paul's story. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with Paul's story. Um, he has another name. He also goes by or went by Saul. Um, his Hebrew name, we call him by his Greek name later because he's hanging out with Greeks. It's Greek ministry. Saul and Paul, same guy. Now, Saul started out as this, um, man, he had a bright future. Saul was on the right track in life. Like a straight-A student, he went to all the right schools. He had all of the right teachers. He did such a good job, and he was rising in the ranks. And then he knew the right people. He was in with 
the right people. And so he becomes part of the Sanhedrin, the ruling class in Israel. And then also, he is so passionate about his faith. And this is what I want for my kids, right? Like, I want them to try hard. I want them to put themselves in situations where they can, they can grow. I want them to meet the right people. I really want them to be passionate about their faith. That was Saul. And then Saul, passionate about his faith and a rising star among his peers, hears about this terrorist group, the way, the Christians, that are ruining his religion. Everything that he believes is being insulted by these Christians. And so he goes to the high priest and he gets letters, permission, to go around the countryside and arrest them. In fact, there's even a moment whenever he stands and he watches a man named Stephen get stoned to death. While Stephen is defending Jesus, he's in the right place at the wrong time, and, 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 he, and, he, and he opens his mouth defending Jesus, and they are going to kill him. And as they pick up rocks to literally destroy his body, to stone him to death, Paul says, here, I'll hold your coats. Here, here, everybody just give me, give me the, th is there anything in the getting in the way of you killing this guy? I will handle it. I approve. And he watched gladly the first Christian martyr die for Jesus. Now he gets these letters from the high priest and his job is to go find these terrorists. He's got some names so he's going to go to their prayer meetings. He's going to go to the, the synagogues. He's going to go into their homes, and he's going to pull them out, and he's going to arrest them. Some of them might even die. And in Acts chapter 9, verse 3, the story goes like this. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground, and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you? Lord, Saul asked, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. For a moment, can we imagine what Saul is going through? Jesus is the bad guy. We killed him and now his followers are pretending like we didn't. And now they're trying to ruin our whole religion. Jesus is a bad word, right? And so I'm like, I, I fall off of my, my donkey, my horse. I fall down. Who are you? Jesus was not the name he was expecting to hear. And in a flash of light, he hits the ground and he's confronted with the truth. Verse seven, the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he couldn't see. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. You think? Like, of course, I don't think I would be eating or drinking anything either in that moment. Imagine in just a single moment, in an instant, he is shook to the core. Have you ever had one of those moments 
when in an instant everything that you were so sure about is flipped on its head and you were the one that was wrong? Have you ever had a moment like that? Of course he's not eating or drinking. He's blind too, like this. What a mess. And I imagine in those three days of blindness and fasting, there were some questions. Who am I, actually? His whole life was about becoming this rising star, this, this zealous believer in in God, fighting for what's right. I was the hero. Am I the terrorist? Think about the sudden rush of guilt. What about Stephen? What did I do? I said that was good, I watched that. What about that grandma that I pulled out of her house last week? What about those little kids? I took their parents, I put them in jail. Imagine the the guilt that he was feeling. Sorry, I cry. If you're just meeting me, it's what I do. (laughs) All right. Imagine that for a moment, though. Going from thinking you're the hero to finding out that you're the villain. Imagine what that did to him and what he thought about himself. Now, verse 10, in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias, and the Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. And my guess is at first, he's like, yay, I get to talk to God today, and I don't think he's expecting the other half of this. The Lord told him, go, and he's like, hold on, let me get some paper. All right, I'm going somewhere. Okay, go to the house of Judas, Judas, okay, got it, on Straight Street, Straight Street, got it. And ask for a man from Tarsus, okay, Tarsus, named Saul. Excuse me. Yeah, yeah, in a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias. That's you. Um, And he's going to place his hands on him and restore his sight. Now step into Ananias' shoes for a minute. What is Ananias feeling in this moment that he's interacting with God and he hears the name Saul? Go see Saul, right? I don't think that he thought that was a good idea, right? Like, I'm pretty sure that, have you ever had one of those moments when you're like, are you sure with God? Have you ever had one of those moments where you're pretty sure you heard from God and you're like, no, I didn't hear that right. In fact, that's, that's how this goes. Verse 13, Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem, and he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. He's like, I have, I, I've heard about this guy. Did you mean Bill? Right, like, maybe you said the name, like, you, maybe I didn't hear you right. You said Saul, right? I've checked over the roster of our team. We've got some pretty good players. We don't need this guy. My daughter's name is probably on that list, right? I know people, I'm on the list. I know people on the list. He's come here coming for me, for my people, for my house. 
Imagine what Ananias is feeling in that moment. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, exclamation point. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim the name, my name, to the Gentiles and to their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Suffer, got it, circle. (laughs) I'm sure he liked that last line. But no, he said, go, he's my chosen instrument. I'm choosing Paul to be on my team. And he's like, are you sure? Right? Like, are you, are you sure? have you heard about this guy? He's like, I know exactly how you feel, but I am choosing him. I want him. Now, can you imagine the walk between Ananias' house and Judas's house? Or like, I imagine it's just like right around the corner, but he takes like the two-hour long way. He's in some back alley, and he's just like, this is stupid. He's kicking rocks. He's like kind of waiting to make sure like God's not going like, nah, I was just joking. Like, you, you did it. He's like, Abraham didn't even have to actually do this. Like, maybe God has, is just testing him, right? And then can you imagine what it's like when he knocks on the door? Think about that for a second. Who did Paul know in Damascus? Because my whole life, I have assumed from the moment the light hit him, he's surrounded by Christians, right? He's hanging out with somebody. The guys he was with were on the mission with him, and they led him into Damascus. Where did they lead the blind Saul? To their friends. Who's Judas? Judas is either a a Roman sympathizer or he is a a Sanhedrin. He's somebody who's against the way who's against the Christians. He's another terrorist. Imagine Ananias having to knock on Judas's door. The door creaks open. Hello? Um, is this Judas's house? Yeah. Who are you? Okay, this is going to sound really weird. Is there a guy here named Saul? door shuts. You hear some murmuring in the background. It creaks back open. Yeah, come on in. Imagine how awkward that was. But the, the Lord said to go. Then Ananias went to the house and he entered it. And placing his hands on Saul, he said, brother, the very first word out of a Christian's mouth that Saul hears, family brother. What I have, you have. What I'm in, you're in. We're in this together, Saul. Now, I imagine Ananias had other words in mind, right? Like, it says that he put his hand on him. Like, I bet you he wanted to put his hands on him. He knows who's on that list. He could have walked in there and said, terrorist, enemy, He said, brother, family, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were going or as you were coming here has sent me to you so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. And he got up and he was baptized And after taking some food, he regained his strength. 
And Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. I love Luke because Luke is telling a story. And the next thing in Luke's story is like, I got to get through this sentence to get to the next thing. He says he spent several days with the disciples. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul says he spent three years. Three years with the people who would look at a guy whose entire identity had just been flipped on its head with all the guilt, all the shame, all the confusion, and would say, chosen, brother, redeemed, Holy Spirit, you're in. And he spends three years with him. Of course he did. Of course he did. Now, with that as the backdrop, we are one and a half sermons into a series on Ephesians. Let's go start Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 1, last week we got through verse 2. We're going to start in 3. That was rude. My wife hated that. I know it. All right. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, I'm not going to stop after every verse, but I'm going to stop there. Paul is writing a letter 25 years after the Damascus event. And he's going to be writing to people about who they are. And he starts with this categorical statement that you already have all of the blessings that you're ever going to need if you're in Christ. If you have put your faith in Christ, if you are in him, you already have all the spiritual blessings. Let me show you those things. And then he goes on to talk. For he chose us. Now he, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loved said before the creation of the world, before there was a grain of sand, he decided that when he looks at you, he's going to see you as holy and blameless. He has chosen to see you as holy and blameless. And you're like, have you seen me? (laughs) Right? Like, did you see what I did on the way to church? Holy and blameless is not how I would describe my life. Right? But he says, I chose you. You're chosen. You're chosen to be part of my family, to be adopted. Now, I know what happens here. You guys are reading this, and you got hung up on that word predestined, right? And some of you are like, ooh, I want to talk about that. And some of you are like, I do not want to talk about that. (laughs) The cool thing is, we can can take as long as we want to go through this book. And so next week, Pastor Tim's going to cover the same message so that he can talk to you guys about predestination. What that does for us today is that it frees us to zoom out from that word and look at what Paul is saying. And what he is saying is that God has chosen you, that he wants you to be part of the family. He has picked you ahead of time. And yet you would say, I feel so unwanted in life. I feel uninvited that I don't belong, that that I don't fit. And maybe it's in your family. Maybe it's in a small group. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's at church. 
and you say, I just feel unwanted. And what I love is that the author, Paul, if he got to hear you say that, he'd say, oh, I know that feeling. Right? I know what it's like to feel unwanted. Imagine that moment whenever I was confronted with all the things I had been wrong. I was literally, my life was wrong. They couldn't possibly want me to be a part of this thing, right? And God said, chosen instrument. And because God said it was true, my feelings had to be wrong. And see, right here we start to see the struggle between how we feel and what God says is true. And at some point, one of them is going to have to win. Let's keep going. In Ephesians 1, verse 7, in him, now we're talking about Jesus, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Now, maybe you've been at church your whole life and you know what redemption is, or maybe you've been at church your whole life and you've been waiting for somebody to explain it. <laughs> redemption is simple. It means to buy back. If I'm going to redeem something, I once deemed it mine, or I deemed it to be valuable, I'm going to redeem it. I'm going to buy it back. It was mine, then it wasn't, and now I want it again. It's like a ransom. Right? Now, I, I hung out with a guy in Mexico on this mission trip. He was telling me this story. When him and his wife got married, she had a really cool car. But you know what happens whenever somebody's got a cool car and then you get married, right? Car goes away. <laughs> it's just part of the deal, right? And so they got married, the car went away, and they moved several times in, in life. And at one point, they moved into this house, and they noticed that across the street, there was this rusted, dilapidated old version of the car that she used to have. And so they went over, and they talked to him, and it was her car. So they bought it back. Right? They bought that car and they shined off all of the rust and they fixed all of the chrome and they redid the interior and now it's a show car. I saw them this last week at the, the Fruita Festival at the car show. They redeemed the car. <laughs> That's a picture of redemption. And God says right here that you have been redeemed if you're in Christ. But there was a problem. God can't just go and be like, you're mine, you're mine again, you're mine again. Because we have the reason we were separated in the first place is a sin problem. And so he says, You're forgiven. And as cool as it would be to have a God that just forgives at, you know, everybody, a judge cannot be a good judge if they only ever forgive. A judge is only good if they're also just. If you are the defendant, you love a judge who's like, forgiven, you're out of here, no big deal, get out of here. But if you're the plaintiff, you're like, not fair, right? So in order for God to be good, he's loving, but he's also just. And so he's like, I want to forgive you, I want to redeem you, I want to buy you back. But that comes at a price. And so he says that you are redeemed through the blood of Jesus Christ. Your salvation is free, but it was not cheap. Through the blood of Jesus, not through his life, not through his words, not through your church attendance, not through a baptismal tank. The payment to make you right with God was the shed blood of the Son. 
And so you're seen as redeemed, as holy, as spotless, as forgiven, and yet we would say, yeah, but I feel like the things that I've done hang around my neck. That I feel so disqualified. Like, yeah, that makes sense for other people, but do you know what I've done? Do you know the people that I've hurt? Do you know the pain that I've caused? The failures that I created? And the author, if you were speaking to Paul, would say, oh, I do. As he stood there watching Stephen be murdered for Jesus. Yeah, I think Paul had a concept of what it meant to be redeemed, and yet your feelings say one thing, but the truth says something else. There were people named in those letters that he had to interact with. And what I love is that not only was Paul redeemed, God is in the business of redeeming circumstances and situations. And even the trip to Damascus, there were people on those letters who he was going to go arrest that he ended up living with. There was people he was going to go hurt that ended up healing him. God is in the business of redeeming in spite of our feelings. Now, we're going to keep going. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. To be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. So what he's saying is that there will be a moment when everybody says Jesus is Lord. All the knees are going to bow. All, now, you might be in one camp or the other. You might be in line to go to heaven or you might be in line to go to hell. But there is going to be a point when you go, oh, I get it. He's Lord. And for some people, when they say he's Lord, it means salvation. And with some people, when they say he's Lord, it means judgment. But everybody's going to know. And we get to be included in the mystery of that. In him, we also were chosen. Now, he's a Jew speaking to the Gentiles, so he's saying, in him, we Jews were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who are the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also, Gentiles, were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth the gospel of your salvation. If you're here today and you have put your faith in Jesus because you heard the message of what he did for you, then you are also included. And when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. If you're here and you have put your faith in Jesus, if you are in Christ, you've been given the Holy Spirit and one of his roles in your life is a seal, a guarantee. See, in the context in this culture, what would happen? If I had a, a letter or a box or a treasure that only I was allowed to open, I would put a wax ring around it and then I would take my signet ring with my initials or my symbol and I would press it into the wax. Sorry, my wife, I guarantee you, I'm shiny, and she's like, this is gross. All right. So that seal is marked, 
right? And what it's saying here is that you are marked, you are sealed in the same way. It's like when God gave you his spirit, he put his DNA in you. My kids will always be a part of my family because they have my blood coursing through their veins. Part of me is in them. And he says, you are part of my family. I will guarantee it. I will put part of me in you. The Holy Spirit marked you, sealed you. You should be sure of your salvation. And yet we would, some of us would say, I don't feel sure. Some of you guys worry about that. In fact, some of us worry about that a lot, right? That like, I'm always worried, am I saved? Is this even real? Could it be possible that I'm in? My life doesn't feel like I should be in. Now imagine Paul. What do you think that first week of Paul's Christian walk was like? Can you imagine going from, like, I've got these letters of people I'm going to kill uh, to, you mean I'm in? Yeah, no, there's no way. You, you must have made a mistake. Like, you don't mean I'm actually in, right? Did you notice that one of the very first things that God said to him through Ananias, he said, Brother Saul, I'm here that you might receive your sight, proof that God is doing the thing, and that you might receive the Holy Spirit, a reminder that you're chosen, that you're in, that you're part of this family, right? Now, I don't know if you caught it or not, but as we went through this, did you see that the Trinity is expressed in what Paul says is true about Christians? That the Father chose you to be adopted into the family. That the Son redeemed you through his blood and that the Spirit seals you and reminds you that you're in, right? The, the wholeness of who God is was put into effect on your behalf so that you could be a part of this, and all of those things are true in spite of what you feel. Now, if we were going to sum all of that up in, in light of the fact that our feelings tend to be the thing that determine how we see truth, I'm going to put something up on the screen. That God's truth frees us to navigate this life with unshakable confidence. If we are a slave to the way we feel about ourselves, then the only route to freedom out of that slavery is God's truth. Freedom comes when you get to the point where you question your feelings instead of questioning the truth in the word, right? That's when there's freedom. That's when you're not a slave to your feelings anymore. And what I love is I think Paul would be able to say, and it's possible, look at me. There's no way that the guy who started the systematic persecution of the church would be the guy who gets to spread it all throughout the Mediterranean and write a bunch of our New Testament. There's no way, right? Except that God said, chosen. Doesn't matter how you feel about it, Paul. It's true because I said it, chosen. You're redeemed regardless of what you feel about what you did. You have the spirit regardless of whether or not you feel like you're in. And Paul was able to walk that out. And he's an example to us that it is possible for God's truth to win over our feelings. Now imagine you for a minute. What if you didn't need approval from other people? 
Imagine the confidence of being able to walk into a room and not have to manage everybody else's impression of you because you've been approved in Christ by the God of the universe. If you're a Christian, whose approval do you need more than that? Right? Imagine the freedom. Imagine the sleep you'd get. Imagine the purpose you'd feel. Or what about this? Imagine if you were so convinced that you were already loved that you weren't putting in all that extra work to get it. You weren't bartering with your spouse. You weren't trying to win it from a date. You weren't giving away parts of yourself that you should never give away. Because you're loved by the God that created you. He wants you. Right? Imagine if you didn't carry a heavy sense of guilt and shame everywhere that you went. It doesn't take away the things that you've done. They can be in your memory, but instead of this ball and chain that feels like it disqualifies you, what if you, every time you see that, you go, I'm so grateful that I am redeemed and that that is paid for. Imagine the honesty that we could have. I would love it if our church became a place where we were awkwardly honest, right? Like we come in and we're telling each other stuff that like nobody else talks about, but it's because I'm forgiven. I don't need to manage what you think about me. Imagine how optimistic you'd be and not held down by your past. Imagine if you were convinced of your salvation. If you're here and you've put your faith in Jesus, you're in. Now, would that mean that you could stop trying to earn God's favor? Would that mean that you would stop having this record-keeping version of Christianity and that you could just live into who he has called you to be? Imagine if it says that the grace was lavished on us. Imagine if we actually felt washed by grace. It was just poured on us. Imagine how gracious we'd be to other people. Right? How kind, how forgiving. Right? These things could actually impact our lives, but there's a problem. This is all easy to hear, and it's hard to experience. Right? You could be here and you're like, yes, I want this. I want that kind of confidence. I believe this. Today and by tomorrow afternoon... <laughs> You're back to trying to get approval or love. And like, like it finds its way back in, right? Why is that? Because the loudest and the most consistent voices are the ones that win. The loudest and the most consistent voices are the ones that win. And how much time do you spend with you? Right? Like, how much time do you spend in your feelings, with your filter, and so I'm going to give you just some practical things to leave here with today. I think that the only real way to go from just hearing this to experiencing this is with these two things. You need, we need to spend more time with the God that determines the truth. And we need to spend more time with people that declare the truth. Right? Like, if you spend all this time with you, and then you spend a bunch of time with the culture around you and your people, how is the truth of God ever going to break through until you spend time with the God of the truth? If you're never giving him any time through his word or with his presence, then it doesn't matter what you hear on a Sunday. And then spending time with people that declare the truth. Look at the impact that Ananias had. Wouldn't it be amazing if all of your friends, whenever they talked to you, they didn't talk to you or tell you who you are based on your their feelings, or even your feelings? What if they ran to places like Ephesians 1 and they said these things? What if they said things to you that were true because God declared them to be true, even if they didn't feel it and you don't feel it? 
Imagine our culture around here if we all became Ananias to the Saul's in our life. What an impact we would make. Now, for me, this is a shameless plug for me, I have seen this show up in my life recently through my discipleship groups. Every week I get together with some guys We've committed to each other for a year. And what we do is we hold each other accountable to spend time with God. We get together and we're asking questions about how we're doing in the word. And then we are declaring the truth of God's word to each other. Man, it's making a difference. Imagine if that was true for all of us. We are hoping to get there as a culture in this church. But you could start by being Ananias for somebody else. Now, some of you guys need to wrestle with this truth here and now. Maybe you came in here and you've just been knocked off of your horse like Paul was. We're going to leave some space here. We're going to set up some ministry uh, partners, some, some guys that are up here willing to pray. Now, we're going to turn, turn down the lights and you're going to have that space if you need to do that today. But for all of us, I think what we need to do is we need to set ourselves up to live like the truth needs to be above our feelings. So we need to spend more time with him and more time with his people. Let me pray over you real quick. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful. Father, we are thankful that you chose us, that you want us. doesn't make sense. I don't know why, but it's true because you say so. And Jesus, we are so thankful that you made it possible by shedding your blood. I don't know why you would do that, but I'm glad you did. And Holy Spirit, we are so thankful that you are part of our experience to remind us that we're in the family of God. I pray that as we go out of here today, that the truth would matter more than how we feel about ourselves. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.